welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Yeah, it's really good to have you on and to talk about, I mean, there's lots of things we could talk about, of course, one entrepreneurial-minded psychologist to another, but really I want to focus on a conversation around your new book, which is Leading from Anywhere, The Essential Guide to Managing Remote Teams. And this is such a timely conversation for lots of reasons. But last night, I was having a conversation with a a friend who's an executive at a company, and they have a big office space, and the lease is running out in a couple of months, and they are having this internal conversation of, hey, we've been running the company for a year without the office. Should we save the money, ditch the office, and go fully remote? What do you think, doctor? <laughs> well, I, you know, it, it's interesting because you hear that story or you hear the really large stories. Like I remember a couple of months ago reading that Pinterest had paid $90 million to get out of a lease in downtown San Francisco, right? Which, which means like scroll back and think about that. That means that the team of accountants approached the board and said that the best possible scenario is we could cut our losses now and only lose $90 million on office space, right? So that tells you where where we're kind of headed on this. I wouldn't say ditch the office entirely. I don't think we're headed for every company is going to be entirely officeless, et cetera. You could ditch it entirely, but have a plan to get people back together from time to time. I'm very, very bullish on the idea that people want to connect. But what I know, and this is really because of the research BC before Corona, was that people were most engaged in their job when their company gave them enough flexibility to let them be out of the office for two to three days out of a five-day work week, right? And the primary reason that didn't happen more often before the pandemic is a lot of leaders just assume, well, how do I know you're going to get work done? You're not actually going to be productive. All of those sort of myths and misconceptions that are broken now. Right. So if, if you do renew the lease, make it a much smaller lease. You probably I mean, if you renew, if you renew the same size, what you may want to do is see if you can negotiate in some sort of build out agreement where the landlord will actually change your office space for you because you're going to need a lot less desks and a lot more meeting spaces. I think that's the reason we're going to have people back in the office gathering. But when it comes to do the deep focused work. We're going to give them the freedom to work from anywhere. It's not a from home or from the office binary dilemma. The future of work is working from anywhere. And so as a leader, you need to learn the skills to lead remote teams because your team is going to be anywhere at any given time. But specific to just the office space, I'm not fully like everyone's going to just disintegrate and go into the ether and treat each other like non-playable characters on the Slack channel, right? There are going to be spaces where we meet, but we'll probably do it a lot less frequently. And the likelihood that your whole team is all together at the same time is a lot smaller moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And what are the what are the opportunities of having a fully remote company? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a myriad of them. The probably the biggest one that comes to mind is talent. You and I have a mutual friend who owned. A, he's actually in the book. He owned a chain of personal training fitness studios, and flipped to training his existing clients remotely. And then very quickly, one of the very first things they realized is all of those great trainers they used to employ that moved out of the geographic footprint of these studios, they could rehire. 
right? And so imagine if you can tap into not just the talent in your city, but the entire talent in your country or the world, et cetera. Now that, uh, that opportunity comes with some challenges, right? If you're a smaller company that let's say you're in the US and you were only based in one state. And so you only ever had to learn HR law and employment law for one state. Well, now you got to learn them for a lot of different ones, right? But the, the ability to tap into that talent network from the entire globe is, is a massive opportunity. Even the existing talent that you have now, though, there's a big opportunity in that the research, even before the pandemic, was really clear that people who work from home or work remotely are more productive, sometimes because they just work more hours. And we could talk about how you avoid burning out all those people. But one of the big factors is they're just less distracted. They have a better boundary between all those little things in the office that drive us nuts. I mean, look, there's a reason that Office Space and Dilbert and The Office are like our favorite for sources of entertainment. They resonate with many of our lived experiences. And now people have the chance to avoid that. I, I, I dream of a world where The Office isn't actually funny anymore, right? Where like no one watches it on Netflix because they don't even get it. And I think we're a generation away from What that. is this reality? Yeah. Right, exactly. And I think we're maybe a generation away from that, right? Within like 10 or 15 years, we'll be like, you guys used to work like that? It'll be cute. It'll be like, it'll be like the way the 20-somethings now watch the Andy Griffith show, right? I mean, one of the things, though, that seems like such a shift, especially in the mind of, of individual leaders on that level, is this sense of trusting your folks to do their best work when you can't see them, when you can't see them working or when you can't you know, sort of, quote unquote, check on them. I mean, your book is really a, a lot about leadership. Like, how do you help people begin to think differently about their relationship with the people that work for them, especially on these really core things like just trust? Yeah. Well, you know, one, one of the ironies is there was always this mentality and it was actually sort of a lazy form of leadership. There was this mentality that you could equate presence with productivity, right? That I can see you, therefore you're working. You come in at eight, you stay till 515, therefore you're a hard worker, right? Well, like ask whoever runs your IT for a report about how much bandwidth is spent on Facebook and YouTube, and then come back to me and tell me the fact that they're there for eight, nine hours a day means they're productive, right? Like it was always a bad holdover from the industrial factory age work, right? The other thing I think is interesting is I profile a couple of companies in the book that didn't seek to become more remote, but ended up that way anyway. Like we talk about Frank Van Massenhove, who took over the Belgian Ministry of Social Security, government organization, right? Known for its bureaucracy, not unlike our administration of Social Security, right? And decided he wanted to lead and build a culture of trust and autonomy. And that led to about 80% of the people being remote at any given time, that sort of work from anywhere world. So it's sort of a cart before the horse thing, right? The big challenge a lot of leaders are, are asking is how can I trust that they'll do their work if I can't see them? Well, the opposite is, is the reality. If you trust them to do their work, you're going to see them a lot less because they're going to know where they need to be to do that best work. Now, there's some things you can do to keep track of that. Spy software is not one of them, right? right? How quickly they're responding to your emails is not one of them. But if you think about- Their presence on Slack though, right? That's how you measure right. whether they're working. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're signed into Slack, therefore they're working. No, uh, it, to the extent that you can shrink kind of project milestones, right? Instead of thinking in quarters or months, think in two-week sprints or even one-week sprints. A lot of remote teams adopt from the world of Agile, the Scrum, the daily stand up of what did I work on yesterday? What am I working on today? Where do I need help or what's blocking my progress? Little things like that, that are actually just good for the team anyway, that help the team in the book, I call it working out loud, meaning they're broadcasting what they're working on so that anybody else is aware. Little things like that will actually help you figure out who's the performer and, and who isn't without feeling micromanaging, right? So that would be the other recommendation. But you do have to like trust is a reciprocal thing. 
And you do have to just sort of do it, right? You just have to put the trust in people. When they betray that trust, the answer is not a new policy of how we're going to monitor you. The answer is you're fired and everyone else who is trustworthy, we're just going to keep trusting you. Absolutely. The trust is extended first. That's the assumption. And then if it's obviously an assumption that is ill-construed, then bye-bye. It's done. I mean, what happens, especially as a, as a company gets bigger and bigger and bigger, is that lack of that one-time trust is misconstrued. We, I mean, we do this in our, in our personal lives, too, to a damaging effect, right? We, in the personal lives, we do the no one will ever hurt me like that. Well, that's actually a bad thing, right? Because it means you're never going to trust anyone again. It's the same thing in an organization. We make a crazy expense report policy because one person stayed at the JW Marriott instead of the Fairfield Inn. But then we end up with everybody feeling nickel and dimed micromanaged instead of just trusting people to be responsible. To hire adults who are capable of thinking and can make reasonable choices. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Most companies don't have a, a dress code policy anymore, but nobody shows up naked, right? Not that I know of. <laughs> now that I work from home, though. Right, in a remote work world, I guess you can't really know that one too much anymore. But you get my point. Absolutely, absolutely. And so one of the things that you alluded to in our conversation about trust is this sense in which remote teams that are that are functioning well are going to have different forms of communication than we're used to. So instead of the sit-down one-hour, one-on-one, every week with your manager, like things might look a little bit different. So you mentioned the scrum meeting? Are there other things that you've sort of taken from the, the teams that you've studied that their way of communication, the rhythm, the patterns of communication are really adjusted well to a remote format? Yeah, well, I think the first thing they can do, and this is this is actually where I start with most of the companies that I work with when I'm when I'm training their managers on how to do this remote thing with a team, is start with a team working agreement. Or when I'm being particularly feisty, I call it a declaration of interdependence, right? A realization that even though we're alone, we're going to need to get this done together. But what it really is, is a conversation about communication mediums and also subjects. Not everything is great for the Slack channel. In fact, most things aren't. Probably the only good use of it is as a, like a sort of water cooler, right? There's a project management software that keeps asynchronous communication, right? That, Like you said with that check-in, right? The check-in part is important, but so is the how are we going to make requests from each other for help or how are we going to give feedback to each other? When do we use which medium? How do we keep each other updated on deadlines? This is all like maybe, maybe schedule a one hour, 90 minutes the most conversation where we're capturing all of these norms. These are usually unspoken norms, but because they're unspoken, people violate them more often than they think. Get it captured in a document that everyone shares and then and then say, okay, this is how we agree to work together. That, that will not only sort of increase a lot of speed of communication and collaboration, it'll increase trust. But what I really love about it now that we're in the 10 months, almost a year into this pandemic, into this great work from home experiment, is I'm seeing some companies end up using that as an onboarding document. In other words, like, welcome to our company. Here's the user manual on how to communicate with your team. And how amazing would that be, right? To show up, it's like your first day to work and your boss is working you through like, no, look, there's a lot to understand and everybody's always sort of insecure and feeling out the team or whatever. But instead of like, boom, here you go. Here's how to understand what that emoji that we put in Slack means, right? Here's how to understand why somebody may not have responded to you too fast on email, because this is how the team actually agrees to work on email. All of those little things are super useful. Absolutely. And it sounds like would, there's a parallel of like that manual being really helpful to anyone entering junior high too. Like here's the code <laughs> for human relationships. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I'll, I'll be honest. I actually stole the idea from 
people that were doing it as a, an individual thing, right? So they would actually, when they were transferring from one team to another, they would smart, a lot of smart people would survey their old team and go, you know, what, what was great about working with me? What was not do their own 360 feedback session, but turn that into their own user manual and then say, Hey, you know, here's me, here's how I prefer to work. And that was, that's what made me think like, why couldn't this work on a team as well? Like it was the same sort of social con. So we, so we started trying it and it started working really, really well. And you can, you can update the document. Like it's not written in stone, but what happens most often in communication that leads to frustration, that leads to burnout, that leads to all sorts of stuff is there's a lot of norms and somebody violates those norms without knowing it because it's not in an agreement. And now we're angry, right? The, the boss sends an email at 1130 and that other person who's, who's sort of Johnny on the spot responds at 1145 and now everyone's mad because we all knew that like, okay, boss sends the emails at 1130, but we don't have to respond until the next day. And now one person is looking more productive than everybody else. And so now we think, oh, I got to jump into that conversation. Next thing you know, it's 2.30 in the morning and you're at inbox zero, but you're only going to get four hours of sleep. That's not really a recipe for yourself, for your own health, but for the health of your team either. Yeah, I think those those unwritten expectations around timing of things is one of those things that becomes really challenging in a remote environment. And probably anytime we're talking about electronic communication, that 2 a.m. email means like, am I supposed to be on? Am I supposed to be checking? Should I have my notifications on? Because my boss emailed me at 2 a.m. If I'm on top of it, if I'm a go-getter, am I responding right away? So I think having this kind of guideline really saves people a lot of anxiety and of course reduces that risk for burnout. Yeah. And, and there's little things too, like, okay, there's always going to be times where you violate that. Like I, I'll give you an example. So I was writing this book with a team of people in the publisher, you know, editors and copy editors and all that sort of stuff. And just because of where our life was and my wife's work schedule, my work schedule, was, I wrote it over the summer of 2020. I worked a lot on Saturdays and Sundays, right? But I was always careful. Anytime I had to send an email on a Saturday afternoon, for example, I would start with, hey, I'm sorry I'm sending this on Saturday. Please do not respond till Monday at like at the earliest. Like I don't need a response. I just know if I don't send it, I'm going to forget by Monday. So I'm sending it now, right? Little stuff like that that you can do as the leader of your team makes a huge difference, right? And even if you don't do that, okay, you send the email at 1130. When you're online with everybody at 9 a.m., you're in Slack or you're in that first Zoom meeting at 9 a.m., do not say, hey, did everyone see the email I sent? Like, no, no, I didn't. It's 9am. I'm starting my work day by signing into Slack. I'll get to your email eventually. Like understand that everybody's got that different rhythm and don't expect that quick response either. Absolutely. A few minutes ago, you used the term asynchronous communication. And, you know, I think this is a really important thing to talk about when we talk about remote teams. So the difference between things that need to happen all together at once, so synchronously, and conversations and decisions that can be made asynchronously. People uh, interjecting their input at different times. I have seen this go wrong in both ways, right? Where there's a paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs that are in Slack when, wow, it would have been so much faster to make a decision or solve a problem just by picking up the phone or hopping in Zoom, 15 minutes, talk it out, bam, done. So how do you help teams know the difference when should we be getting in a meeting versus when should we, you know, keep a record of all of our thoughts, whether it's email or Slack or some other asynchronous tool? Yeah. So, okay. So it starts with that team working agreement idea. And then the next part of that, once we decide, I would really encourage most teams to start with what subjects or what topics require synchronous versus asynchronous communication, right? And, and this is a tough conversation because for some teams, 
updates every day are a synchronous thing. That's why they borrowed the daily standup, for example. For other teams, it's not, right? Or maybe it's a globally dispersed team, so it's impossible. So it can be, as long as you do it once a day, that's fine. But we don't care which in the 24 hours in the universal time code it is, right? So the team has to have that conversation about subjects. Then we move to a conversation about mediums. And this is where it really breaks down, right? If you think about most teams, you've got something like Slack, you've got something like email, which honestly are the same thing, to be honest with you. And both are asynchronous tools. Then you've got, hopefully, you've also got a project management software going, something like Basecamp or or, Mir, or Trello or something like that. Um, if you don't, highly recommend it. I, I, <laughs> I don't care which one you use, just the idea that there's something that's tracking that conversation because it's going to work better for capturing project feedback, et cetera, than are either the email or Slack channel. And then the other mediums of synchronous communication are, like you said, Zoom or a phone call. To be honest with you, this is the weirdest one for me. I feel like we all forgot that our smartphones can make calls, like I, like immediate calls, right? They're, they don't have to be used to send a text message requesting an event invite for a Zoom call. And in fact, the research is really weird here. There's a number of studies that were done pre-pandemic that actually suggested that empathetic listening, in other words, the ability to be in a conversation with one other person and understand their emotions was actually stronger in audio-only communication. We think we need all the visual tools, all the facial expressions, et cetera. And that's why every call, it seems like now, is a scheduled Zoom call. But the truth is we don't. There's a lot of things where we could pick up the phone and have a faster communication, seven minutes instead of a scheduled 30-minute meeting, and actually have a more um, emotion-rich, more understanding communication if we jump to that. And, and I'll be honest with you. I'm like, I'm right on the borderline of Gen X and Millennial, and both of those generations hate phone calls, right? Like, to, to me, the smartphone is for texting. So this is something I've had to, like, relearn over the last nine months after I started reading the research is like, I should have just more phone calls with people because that tends to work better. The other thing that it helps with is to be honest with you, you're having that phone call. That can be your time. You go take a nature break and go walk outside and sort of rest and restore as well. So there's a lot of reasons to ditch that. We always need to be a video call if we're doing synchronous and rediscover some of these other tools. I'm so glad to hear you say that. That's one of my go-to recommendations with a lot of the entrepreneurs I work with is like, get on the phone and take a walk. Get up from the computer, stop staring at the screen. You can still have your conversation, your meeting and connect in a really meaningful way, but also really serve your body and your spirit by getting up and moving a little bit. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And by the way, if you're listening to both of us and you think like, oh, that's that's crap, it'll never work for me. I actually found a study and I write about it in the book that that had people guess how, how restorative a nature break would be for them and then had them go do it. Take a 15 minute walk around a park that was located right next to the the office building where they were doing the research and then come back and rate how they were restored. And you guessed it, almost everyone underestimated how restorative getting outside in fresh air. And even if it's like a little fake tree in a pond, right, it's still way more restorative than like moving over into your living room and watching Netflix for 20 minutes that turns into three hours. Absolutely. Even in parking lot, like it's not ideal, but blue sky, a little bit of fresh air. Yeah, totally. So as you think about leaders that are really adept at managing remote teams well, like the exemplars, the best case scenario. What are those characteristics? What are the things that those leaders cultivate really well to be extraordinary leaders in this different kind of environment? Yeah. So when when we look at this research, it's actually, it's, it's quite interesting. Most of it was done pre-pandemic, but in a way, I think that makes it more valuable because it was done when virtual was a choice instead of something everyone was thrust upon us. 
And when we look at teams that that succeeded and, and outperformed other teams virtually, we find really three characteristics. And we've actually talked a lot about one. The first characteristic is shared understanding, which means we do the work of understanding each other's knowledge, skills, abilities, how we prefer to work, the context we're working in. I probably haven't talked about that yet, but the, you know, the realization that some of us, I'm recording this in my office that's 10 by 10 in the basement of my house, totally interrupted. I think you're in a closet with some like uh, drapes pulled around you or what have you, right? And, that, and that's and that's not to make fun of you, like that's our life, right? Some people's office for the last nine months has been a folding screen they bought at Home Depot and stretched across the corner of their dining room. And on the other end of that folded screen are two elementary school kids trying to learn via Zoom, right? Different context than the one that maybe the boss who has a spare bedroom because of his or her grown kids has, right? And we need to understand that context. So the building that sense of shared understanding is key. The next piece is shared identity, which is the extent to which I feel like I'm a part of a team. And actually where we are right now, this is my 2021 struggle. This is what I'm predicting is the big struggle for a lot of remote teams. Because when it's safe to come back to the office, which is actually going to be a different definition for different people on your team, people ask me, when are we going back to the office? And I always say, we're not, at least not all of us and not all of the time. There's going to be a tendency for an us versus them between the co-locateds and the remotes. So making sure that we're doing things that foster a sense of shared identity, that build bonds between people wherever they are, that remind people of the mission and purpose of the organization, why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing. All of those things build that sense of shared identity. And then the last piece, and this is true whether actually for a co-located team or a remote team, but I feel like it's more true for a remote team, is a sense of psychological safety. Presumably, you hired all of these people, you brought them on the team because of their knowledge, skills, abilities, the diversity of their perspectives, you want them to bring their full selves to work. But if they don't feel safe to do that, if they don't feel safe to speak up when they disagree, if they don't feel safe to express that kind of divergent opinion, etc., they're not going to be doing that, they're going to be self censoring. And this is huge, especially now, because it's a whole lot harder to express dissent on a Zoom call. And it's harder for a, a leader to read a room on a Zoom call and realize that what you just said didn't land. Maybe you accidentally communicated disrespect and now you're damaging to that sense of psychological safety. So that those three things, shared understanding, shared identity, and psychological safety are the things that the leaders that really, really dive in and perform well focus on. Most of us have been focusing on the tech for the last nine months of how do we just keep communicating. And, and that's the funniest thing because that's the number one questions I get when I do a lot of interviews. Like, Oh, do you like Basecamp or do you like do you like uh, Trello? I'm like, I like shared understanding, shared identity, and psychological safety. And once we have those, we can talk about what tool. Yeah, and I think developing that shared understanding, psychological safety, and shared what what was the what's the one I'm missing? Shared, shared identity. <laughs> yeah, I was like tip of my tongue. Shared identity, shared understanding, and psychological safety. One of the challenges that I've observed in a number of the companies that I work with who are distributed globally is that folks are coming in and now have this, I think, new challenge, new opportunity, new invitation to really begin to understand cultural context differently. You may be working with people all over the world. And so developing a sense of psychological safety may look different with somebody who is in Pakistan or in, you know, Central America than it looks like someone who lives a couple blocks from you. Can you speak a little bit to how to do that well? Yeah, v vulnerability is uh, is a whole different in a culture that's also honors saving face, right? So so those are, are challenges that come in. I, I feel bad on this. I'm going to punt because anything I say here would be a garbled rehash of Aaron <laughs> Meyer's brilliant work on culture. So Aaron Meyer is a professor at INSEAD who has this amazing book called The Culture Map, which is basically a way in, a, in kind of a four-box grid or an XY axis 
to graph the differences between the culture you're in and the culture of people on your team, et cetera. And so maybe that's part of your shared understanding journey is just having everybody read the culture map and, and get a sense of it. Like I said, I could, I could try and give you my version of Aaron's thing, but like Aaron's brilliant. So, so I would say. <laughs> we'll let her speak for herself. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's the, the better strategy. I mean, it's, it's part of that shared understanding piece. And it's a huge one if you are in that geographically dispersed team to understand those differences of the culture. And her work goes beyond like Hofstede's cultural dimensions and all the old school stuff. So I would definitely check that out. Make that part of your remote team book club. Maybe after you read Leading from Anywhere Together, then the next one can be the culture map. Right. I love the, the ordering there. Beautiful. What is something that you learned in the course of writing this book that surprised you? Probably the the most surprising thing for me was thinking about downstream effects of all of this, right? So I wrote this when everybody was still screaming about how remote was going to be here forever. Like I started writing it then. Facebook and Twitter were all announcing, we're going to be remote forever, indefinitely, et cetera. And then gradually as I'm writing it, there's a realization like, no, people are, are going to go back to some level of baseline. And that became the, I think we're going to go back to greater flexibility and people feeling like they can be away from the office two or three days and so it's that work from anywhere world. But what really surprised me when I started thinking about downstream effects, we talked about talent management, right? But there's larger effects, salaries, right? Don't have to be tied to cost of living anymore. I think we're going to see most of the geographically dispersed companies that I work with don't actually use any sort of cost of living adjustment, right? They're just, this is what the job is worth from us. Or like Basecamp, for example, picks a city. I think this is funny. They have hundreds of employees and they say, we always just look up what the 90th percentile for the city of San Francisco is. And then we just offer that to anyone. I don't care where you are, right? The fact that you choose to live in Billings, Montana or downtown LA doesn't matter. That's irrelevant to me. I just know what the job, what it's worth to our company. And that's, that's what it is, right? right? I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Now, I always find that fascinating because I'm most known on the interwebs for giving this really well-viewed, but also well-hate-mailed speech about how salaries need to be much more transparent in organizations. So you don't shift that cost of living thing without discussion about transparency as well. That's a downstream effect. I think we're going to have a, a little bit different way that we approach vacation policies. There's sort of been this ping pong back and forth between should you have unlimited vacation or do people take less vacation because of your unlimited vacation policy and all of that sort of stuff. And I wonder if that conversation will sort of be irrelevant, right? Like if people can work from anywhere, then what does it matter that they're renting a beach house in Florida for the week while they're, you know, they're still working, they just choose to spend the afternoons, right? It's going to be painful, to be honest with you, as we hash some of those things out. But I think it's really, it's, it's a good opportunity to do that. There's already been, a, like I said, I joked about earlier, there's a reason Dilbert, Office Space, The Office are all hilarious, but they also speak to a tension that we've had between knowledge work being managed like industrial work, that we don't really have an excuse to keep that tension anymore. We might as well deal with it. And so I feel like I'm at, we're at the beginning of this larger revolution that's going on. And I, I kind of wasn't expecting that. I just kind of figured it'd be in this easy little like, well, yeah, let's just learn the lessons from distributed companies for, for every company. And then I started thinking like, whoa, no, actually, this is something HR needs to pay attention to, right? Mental health stipends are probably going to need to go up, right? Things like whether or not you have an office or a technology stipend. These are all these weird conversations that you never would have had to think about if you just said, well, everyone be here Monday through Friday, eight to five, there's free coffee and internet and a copier. Well, now there's not, right? And so that has way more downstream effects than we think. Yeah, I think one of the downstream effects that I've been thinking a lot about is the nature of adult friendship. You know, a lot of us formed our friendships with people that we worked with at various phases of our career. And of course, it's possible to create very meaningful friendships remotely without seeing each other in person. But 
it is different. And I think that the depth of those friendships is a little bit different than the shared experience of being in the same space. What's your perspective on that? You know, how, how do we make friends if we aren't hanging out with the person in the cubicle next to us? Well, so I kind of think of this as a good thing, right? So, and, and hear me out on this. So I, I the book before Leading From Anywhere was a, a book called Friend of a Friend, which is all about the, the science of how people form social networks, et cetera. And you can't dive into any of that sociology or social network research without encountering Robert Putnam and bowling alone and this idea that, you know, membership in rotary clubs and bowling leagues and, and religious organizations, it's all down, right? Because people are shifting more and more as they've been expected to work more and more hours, they're shifting more and more of their social functions to that. And so I wonder if this is sort of a, a swinging back to that, right? Okay, I can't draw identity from my work friends. I can't draw friendships from my work ends. So I'm going to have to get more involved in one of these things. And, and now my hobby becomes something I'm more invested in and I develop friendships there, et cetera. So I think that could be a good thing. I think as a, as a leader of the organization, you have to pay attention though to sort of what's going on because some of your people aren't going to do that. And others are right. And so you do have to build spaces where people feel like they can come and, and be friendly. Like, I actually think this is probably the only good use for the Slack channel. I know I'm like disrupting the orthodoxy here when I say this, but the only good use to me is as an asynchronous sort of water cooler where people talk about non-work topics, a place where everyone feels welcome, but no one feels obligated. And you can pair that with other stuff. Like I actually wrote the book doing what I call this work sprint, where I met two other writer friends of mine who I used to get to see two or three times a year, don't get to see ever anymore. And we would sign on 11 a.m. Central every day and we would say hi real quick and then we would write for 45 minutes or so. And then we chat a little bit at the bottom of the hour. So building those little things in can kind of replace that. Society-wide though, I wonder if we're going to see a shift back to um, people drawing those friendships from community groups and things like that. And candidly, when I look at sort of how disconnected, lonely, and polarized our country is, at least as the United States, I think that's a good thing. I, I think I want people more invested in their community than I want them in their jobs. Yeah. And I just do hope that it translates to people take the initiative to when it is more safe and, and possible to get out of their houses and begin to be part of different kinds of activities. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I, I closed the book profiling and I'm biased here, but I closed the book profiling Tulsa Remote, which is uh, the largest and most successful remote worker sort of relocation program. I think it's most successful because it's not just like a tax incentive. It's actually driven by a nonprofit. But one of the things they really emphasize is that you you shouldn't come here if you're just trying to take advantage of geographic arbitrage. You lived in the Bay Area and now you can move here and buy a house for half the cost. You should come here if you want to be involved in the community. And then therefore, we have an obligation to help you get plugged into the rest of the community. And the, the, the former or the founding director of that I interviewed, and he said this thing that I thought was amazing. He said, before remote became a trend, almost everyone had to fit their life in the margins. We built our life around work, right, in the morning hours and the afternoon hours. And now with remote, you can build work around the margins of what's important to you. And some of my job is helping people figure out that you can spend time in the middle of the day on those things that are important to you and get invested in the community. And I think that's true for any leader of a remote team. You, you probably don't want all of your people just thinking, let's recreate the eight to five. You want them thinking about what schedule for their work works for them, including being more invested in friends and family, right? But being more invested in your community, et cetera. And you want to make sure they have the flexibility to do that. Because if you're demanding that the same, we keep the same hours, we keep that same rhythm, people are still shoving their life into the margins 
when it's easier to just plop on the couch and watch Disney Plus, right? And so we don't want that. We want to actually encourage them to be invested in that community. It's great for us long-term because they're healthier workers, um, but it's great for them as well. Beautiful. Well, that seems like a beautiful place to leave it in terms of this way of thinking about the future of work and professional life that isn't just crammed into uh, these certain blocks in a day, but that there is the opportunity for flourishing in a variety of locations, in a variety of relationship contexts, and being part of life in, in rich and satisfying ways. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know this, work-life balance has always been this sort of stupid illusion because it it rested on the idea that these were separate and opposing spheres that we could balance, and they're not. They're things we need to integrate. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, thanks so much, David, for taking the time to chat with me. Um, the book is the book is Leading from Anywhere, The Essential Guide to Managing Remote Teams. And uh, it's available kind of everywhere and anywhere, Amazon. And if people want to really follow what you're doing and, and learn more about your work, what's the best place for them to uh, stalk you online? Yeah, well, uh, well, that really depends on where they like to stalk, right? So I guess davidberkus.com would be the easiest from there. You can pick your socials. We, you know, we're on everything these days. I'm not on TikTok. I don't dance, so I'm not on TikTok. But other than that... Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually do follow TikTok finance on Twitter because it's this hilarious reposting of like these idiots posting their financial takes. That's kind of funny. So I might start an account just to follow them. So you're right. It might be a not yet. But anyway... The point is, from there, you could go to whatever socials you want to keep the conversation going. And I, and I hope you do, because this is a conversation we'll be having for a number of years as we shake out all of these downstream effects. But I, And I don't know where most of it's going to go, but I can promise you that the future of work is letting your people work from anywhere. And that means you need to develop the skills to lead from anywhere. That's why we called the book that. <laughs> Beautiful. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.